You're listening to The Mumbrella Cops. The Mumbrella Cops. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis, and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's Tim Burrows. Hello, hello. Xander Wilson. G'day. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella Cast, Xander will be chatting to Sydney Morning Herald's editor Lisa Davies and director of subscribers and growth Dave Eisman about celebrating the 190th anniversary of the Herald. I mean, 190 years, it's not like... Okay, we've done 190, time to go home, guys. We're looking forward to the to the double century and, uh, you know, our ongoing relevance and importance to this city and the nation and, you know, Australia's place in the world, I guess. The surprisingly positive impact of COVID-19 on subscription growth. We very quickly noticed that this was possibly the greatest um, turning point for our subscription business, our digital subscription business that we'd ever see. And why the future of the SMH is inextricably linked with the continuation of the print edition. They're still huge revenue drivers for us and I think it's a really encouraging sign. I can't see a time when there won't be a print product. But first, the week's topics. The second radio rating survey is out. Who won and who lost? The first breach of the AANA Code of Ethics distinguishable advertising rule keeps influencer marketing in the spotlight. And seven gears up for the Olympics. GFK's second radio survey of the year dropped this morning, Thursday, April 15. The second survey of the year is when we typically begin to see results we can start to read into a bit more, particularly after some significant shifts across the various markets. Let's kick off in the two biggest markets, Sydney and Melbourne, what were the big takeouts, Xander? Uh, well, obviously, a good place to start is to today FM breakfast. Um, something that we've been keeping quite a close eye on since the start of the year and and for the last few years. Um, SEA won't be expecting big things from this show uh, from from Hughes, Ed, and Aaron so early on. Uh, but for them to be falling back below the four percent share mark won't exactly be cause for popping champagne. Um, and so, of course, the other big story in Sydney, Carl and Jackie O bouncing back into double figures. Um, they hit a 10.9% share this rating survey. Uh, I caught up with HT&E and ARN uh, CEO Kieran Davis straight after the ratings and, and he said that Carl and Jackie O are really not just the gold standard in Australia but also globally, um, you know, radio stations all around the world are looking at seeing how they can take munda- seemingly mundane topics and make them really, really interesting um, Kieran was also pleased with Jonesy and Amanda, who jumped 1.7 points as well. Um, and I had had a quick chat with uh, Greg Burns, who's head of radio at Nine Radio as well. Um, one of the other results in Sydney was Ben Fordham losing 2.6 percentage points. He didn't seem concerned. Um, and if he was, he was pulling a pretty good poker face on this morning. Um, but it'll be definitely interesting to see uh, how that show goes next book. Uh, and just quickly running uh, the ringer over Melbourne, um, Greg was Definitely more pleased about them. Uh, 3AW Breakfast with Ross and Russell has a 21.5% share. And even though that's not quite as high as it was last year, it's still more than double um, the competition. Uh, the big winner in Melbourne outside of that was was Nova, Chrissy Salmon Brownie growing their share. Um, and um, yeah, they were really the only mover in breakfast to go up more than a point. And just uh, you make that point on Sydney, the slight dip for 2GB. So 2.6 share. So that's down to, so this is Ben Fordham, obviously the audience he inherited from Alan Jones, and so now down to 15.5. We've seen ABC Sydney just blip upwards a bit, so they were up half a point to 13.2. That's a small gap now. That's two points. 
like if this happened in exactly the same way for another survey, then in the space of four surveys, Ben Fordham has lost his lead. Should they be worried? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say so at the moment. That's quite a big dip for, for Ben Fordham there, and you'd expect that to correct somewhat. Um, when I was speaking uh, with with Greg, uh, Greg Burns, he, he said that the listeners for Ben are in two categories. There's the rusted on Alan Jones listeners that are still listening to him, and then they're also carving out new listeners, and he, and he pointed out to some demographics where – um, not necessarily this survey, but especially across last year, they'd gained listeners. Um, it, when it, when you look at ABC, uh, Wendy Harmer and Robbie Buck have been a strong show, not just last year, but over the last couple of years. Um, and it's possible that we're not quite yet to see the correction from talk back towards entertainment radio hit their show yet. So what we might see next survey is Ben Fordham rebound and Wendy and Robbie lose a bit of share. But you're absolutely right. It's definitely one of the re- places we really want to be looking at. And, and you know, if Ben continues to drop share, I'm not sure how long Nine Radio can say that it's not a concern of theirs. Hey, and, and to your point, looking at kind of the age profile, I mean, wow, 2GB, you know, they, without 65 plus, they'd be in the middle of the pack. And without 55 plus, they'd be at the back of the pack. You know, it's just, you know, the kind of the... the, the the average audience for 2GB across the day, for 65 plus, that's where 40,000 of them are. The average audience, 2539, one of those advertising friendly groups, 5,000. So it's, that's definitely one of their kind of, uh, one of their vulnerabilities, isn't it? They've gone for Ben, generation change, come younger. What if it takes a while? Yeah, I mean, what a lot of radio executives have told me down the years is that when you look at a show that's just changed, you need to take the amount of time that the old shows were on and maybe it will take a quarter or, or a fifth of that around about to, to finally, like, change that. So How long was Alan Jones so on for? That, that's the thing. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that rule applies here because Alan was on for, for so, so, so long. And, and I'm sure they... Right before wa- they invented radio. They won't be sitting there going, okay, yeah, Ben Fordham has 10 years to bed into this market. Um, but he will be given longer than most... To, who, who come in as replacements for long-standing shows, um, you know, it would be like if ARN ever had to replace Carl and Jackie O, which I'm sure they hope they never have to, but if they do, whoever they put in, they're going to have to give a long time to to, to really pull that. And, and I think, you know, well, ben, ben, doesn't, ben doesn't have much to worry about for today a couple FM of years. FM have given, what, seven years so far for the replacement <laughs> of uh, Carl and Jackie? Now, I, I, actually, I was going to ask you about that point as well from what you were saying earlier. Um, so many radio experts do talk about Carl and Jackie O being world standard, respected around the world, that, you know, to the outsider, you just think loudmouth bogan. Them, but there must be something more to it than that because so many people take them so seriously. Yeah, I mean, I think we were talking about this earlier today after the ratings came in. I think they both still take it very seriously. When I was speaking with Kieran earlier today, he said, yes, the show gives up a vibe that it's just been thrown together hastily at the last minute. But we were also talking about this earlier today. They've got, you know, a team of thousands basically working on the show. The planning is to the nth degree. Um, you know, Carl has publicly said that he comes in and he reacts to what Jackie O does. Um, Jackie O spends a lot of time, you know, getting everything ready for every single show. So I think they, they take it seriously and they will continue to. And Carl says he doesn't care, care about the ratings, but he does. 
He really does. And I think as lo- if they can be as long, number one for as long as, as long as they can, um, you know, I, I can't see it changing in Sydney unless they leave the, the slot. I mean, it does feel like they care. And I must admit, when I listen to Dave Hughes on Today Breakfast, um, do you get that same overwhelming feeling that that team cares? I mean, I think Hughesy cares more than he lets on. I spoke to him like at the end of last year and he said he doesn't care at all. I don't believe that. If it's an unmitigated failure, that will be a blot on his resume, even though he's had a great radio career. So he'll be hoping to turn it around. Moving on to other markets, Zoe, you've covered Brisbane and Perth. What were the discussion points from there? Yeah, so what caught my eye in Brisbane to kick off with was obviously Nova losing its top spot overall and in particular Kate, Tim and Joel losing another 1.5 ratings points on top of the 1.1 points they lost last survey. They're still the market leader though. They have a 13.3% share. And the closest follower, I think, is sitting around 11%. And I spoke to Paul Jackson earlier today, and he is not concerned about it at all. I mean, Brisbane goes through waves of having quite a competitive market between the stations. And as he pointed out to me, Nova hasn't begun its marketing for 2021 yet. It's actually kicking off this weekend. And once there's support for Kate, Tim and Joel in market up in Brisbane... Uh, he thinks that show's just going to rebound and keep picking up the share that it was seeing last year. They were sitting around 15% at one point. So he's very confident that it's just the the start of the year. And once the marketing kicks off, they'll be picking up once again. Also standing out to me in that breakfast slot, which has always been very, very competitive, was 4KQ basically coming out of nowhere and gaining 1.2 ratings points to take a 12% share. So Nova sort of slipped away from their top hold from Survey 1 in Breakfast as well. In Survey 1, the margin between the first place in Breakfast and the sixth place in Breakfast was like 1.4 points. And now that margin's much wider with 97.3, dropping a couple points and widening that gap. What about on... AM for BC because they haven't leapt forward the talk station. So Neil Breen at breakfast, 7.2 share. Now, looking at the cumulative numbers, so how much of an audience is sort of sampling them across the, the survey period, that is a really low number for 4BC. It's 146, 146,000, which is way behind most of the other competitors. Is that a failure, do we think, of marketing? Because if the audience don't sample the shows in the first place, then how do they stick around? So are the presenters, is Neil Breen entitled to uh, to ask Nine to spend a bit more money on marketing, do you think, Xander? Yeah, potentially. Um, I sort of floated the idea with, with, with Greg Burns from Nine Radio earlier today about that station, I guess, not picking up quite as quickly as, as some of their other other new new shows like Gareth Parker at 6PR six, six over in Perth. Um, and, and Greg was... Greg made some interesting points about how Brisbane audiences sort of still think that that's a nationally syndicated uh, radio station. So obviously you had people like Alan Jones going up there in breakfast, um, but really being a Sydney show. So he, so he was talking about the fact that um, obviously awareness needs to be created there for Neil, um, but it, you know he said he's a great broadcaster. He said it's, it might be a slightly slower burn because you're not going from one Brisbane-based host to another one. 
Um, but I expect that over the rest of the year, that marketing spend might up. Um, and, and you know, it, it's only a matter of time before people realize that Alan's not on that station anymore. And for those who didn't want to listen to him, there's a, there's a local breakfast show in. Um, and that's what Greg kept coming back to, talking about live and local, live and local, live and local. Um, and they're putting that in practice there. So we'll see how he goes on it. You make Greg sound quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't ever. Live and local. Let's fly across to the other side of the country quite quickly because uh, that was an interesting one in Perth. We saw a, a, a few quite big headline changes mid-survey. So what was going on in Perth? Yeah, so all eyes were on 96FM's breakfast team this survey after it was announced mid-survey period that Fred Boddicker would be returning to his retirement and instead they were bringing Dean Clares out of his retirement to take his place alongside Lisa Shaw. And that and that show went up 1.5 points, this survey. And look, we don't know whether that's because people loved Fred Boddicker and so there was a lot of listeners at the first half of the survey or whether people really loved Dean Clares and tuned in at the second half of the survey. But I think survey three will be a really interesting one to look at for that team. Uh, elsewhere in Perth, Mix and Triple M did pretty well considering the sort of reshuffle that happened with those stations at the start of this year. And Nine Radio 6PR had a really good survey this time around. It was the best in seven years, so I am told, with Gareth Parker gaining 1.1 points in breakfast. And he's a new host in that slot. They moved him from morning into breakfast after Basil Zemplis left at the end of last year. Next up, regulation of influencer marketing is underway with the first ad standards breach. The conversation surrounding influencer marketing continued this week as the first case to breach the AANA Code of Ethics new rule about distinguishable advertising came to light. A post for Runaway the Label by Bachelor winner Anna Heinrich was the subject of the complaint. How did this play out, Zoe? Is it anything different to what we would be expecting under these circumstances? Well, what was really interesting about this case is, yes, it's the first case to breach that new rule about distinguishable marketing. But the interesting thing is that Runaway the Label did not respond to ad standards reaching out to them and saying that, the, the post was under review. I would not respond to the police if they gave me a traffic ticket that I didn't have to pay either. That's, I mean, that's a fair point and it kind of plays into how this whole thing unfolded because as they didn't respond confirming whether or not the post from Anna Heinrich was an ad, the panel, the community panel proceeded under the guise of thinking that it was an ad. They decided that based on the display of the dress and the product placement and the quality of the image that it was and it's really interesting to me that what happens if it wasn't and this case was published and it came out and Mumbrella and some of the mainstream publications who did cover it did publish it and then the brand had to come out and say no that wasn't a paid partnership like that wasn't actually an ad so it's interesting to me that the panel just sort of went ahead not knowing whether or not it is it was in fact an ad and the complaints were upheld again runaway the label did not respond to ad standards and then here we go it got published and we all reported on it and then 
a change was made to the post after Anna Heinrich was put in the spotlight. Anna's management is claiming that they didn't uh, know enough about the situation, that ad standards, they weren't aware that ad standards had been uh, approached, but d- did they understand that, that she had to put uh, the disclaimer on the post? So when I reached out to them, they said that they were not contacted by Runaway, the label, saying that ad standards had been in touch with them and therefore they didn't know this whole thing was going on until it st- like they started getting media requests when the case was published on the ad standards website. However, like that doesn't excuse to me the fact that the post was still made without disclosing that it was a paid partnership. Like it doesn't excuse them from wrongdoing. It doesn't excuse the brand or Anna Heinrich from wrongdoing in this case because the post was still published without that disclosure. So whether or not they knew about ad, the ad goings on with ad standards, I don't know if that excuses them from anything. So here's the thing though. Okay. How do we actually fix this problem? Because if uh, brands aren't going to behave, apparently Tim, like me, and just fess up to everything and pay fines I don't need to pay, how do we, how do we actually get anyone to accept responsibility? Here? Look, one of the problems with any form of self-regulation is it only works if everyone believes in it and takes part in it. You know, the... Uh, press council, self-regulatory body, wobbles a bit. Um, similarly, with ad standards, you rely on everybody taking part. Famously over the years, wicked campers are the ones who are super notorious because they put those offensive slogans on their camper vans and then there's a complaint and then they just ignore ASB and then that's that. So that's always been the problem. But, of course, once you get the whole influencer economy, then you've got the risk of a whole bunch of small brands out there that never take part. But there is an answer, which is, in this case, it's probably illegal. Misleading and deceptive conduct, something the ACCC takes pretty seriously. There's consumer law. If I were at standards, anyone who refuses to participate, report it to the ACCC. Um... I know I say this a bit, but when I was researching my book... Hold on, you you wrote a book? Oh, my God. Shocking. I talked to um, the ACCC about this very question of influencers. They confirmed that not disclosing probably would be a question that could be looked at under misleading and deceptive conduct. And they said that one of the reasons they have not had a single investigation so far, or certainly when I went to them for that comment was that there'd be no complaints. So complain ad standards, that's simple. It's your backs it's your regulatory backstop if the self-regulation doesn't work. I mean, you're you're looking at like one very far end of the spectrum, but it's interesting to me that, you know, something that ad standards says about non-compliance is that a brand is risking its reputation because it's going to be known to be breaching advertising standards in Australia. I'm not buying any and more dresses from Runaway than well, Abel. Well, in this case, it's kind of weird because as sceptical as we are about that kind of weak argument, it actually worked. I mean, people were publishing stuff about Anna Heinrich breaching ad standards and then she went back and changed the post to disclose that it was a paid partnership. So it kind of worked in the end. Coming up next, seven sprints. Sorry, towards the Olympics. Seven is now counting the days until the 2021 Tokyo Olympics kick off. 
The network launched its coverage of the games on Wednesday with a media event using the event as a platform to rope in interested advertisers yet to commit to buying slots during the coverage. Xander, you tuned in. Are you pumped for the Olympics and should marketers be? Um, I mean, unsurprisingly, Seven really leaned pretty heavily into the nostalgia and Australian pride that you get when you watch inspirational moments from past Olympics. Um, So that was pretty heavily littered throughout the presentation and it was sort of hard not to go, oh, I'm excited for this, Um, you know, big moments was a big theme for the whole presentation as well um specifically on their coverage they announced there'll be 43 channels available to watch the olympics on 36 of those will be curated by seven themselves Um, and the digital side was pushed pretty hard there'll be 8 million users registered on seven plus watching they expect and their chief digital officer jared roberts said that there'll be more data points than ever for advertisers um, and called it the biggest ever advertising event for Australia as, as well as the biggest sporting event in the world. So, um, and then specifically for advertisers looking to get involved, um, their network sales director, Nat Harvey was on hand um, talking about the fact that 70% of the available slots have been sold at, at this stage. Um, that may have changed, that, that was yesterday, but um, there's still time for advertisers if they want to, to get a piece of the pie. Well, we know it's actually gonna take place, uh, Touchwood, we're as certain as we ever have been before that it's gonna take place. Obviously, there's going to be a few less people there. Uh, how are they going to deal with a, a new scenario of the Olympics? It's really not going to feel the same, surely. Yeah, so during the presentation, I, I noted that their head of sport, Lewis Martin, who, who did his own shorter presentation, talked about the fake use of fake crowd noise. And I sort of went, oh, are they going to dive into that? And they didn't really. Um, so I asked him about it after the presentation when we had a quick chat um, and also whether they're concerned about the lack of full stadiums playing into that whole thing. The big Olympic moments you watch back, they all have cheering crowds, Kathy Freeman winning the 400 metres, you know, the whole of Australia standing and, and, and cheering her on but all those big moments you look back and you think about the crowd noise is really just as much part of it as what's being achieved um and so uh lewis talked about the fact that they do have that as a contingency they have fake crowd noise um if they need to use it but he expects only to need it as maybe supplementary at this stage um he referred to Japanese elite clapping um, and said that the Japanese in particular are very, very good at clapping. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, it's a whole different medal section there. So I do understand what he means in in, in that respect. Um, you know, it is a culture that's full of honour. You know, the crowds aren't likely to, it's to boo, synchronized I synchronised clapping that, that we've seen before in uh, audiences in Japan. It's, it's quite impressive. Yeah, I, I've watched plenty of football games uh, uh, in Japan, the J-League in, in particular, and you don't tend to get those crowds that boo in sort of more Western countries. So, um, you know, I, I sort of understand what he's saying with that. But, yeah, as you say, they're, they're 100% the event will go ahead. Um, even if restrictions become tighter, they can up that crowd noise if they need it. They might not, use, they might not need it at all if, 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 the, if more tickets are sold and, and they are continuing to sell tickets for all the events at this stage. So moving away from crowd noise and kind of borrowing on Tim's Stephen Bradbury comment before, uh, is Seven realistically expecting that in the rush to the line there will be a decent amount of brands wanting to jump on board now? We're really close. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, 70% or so taken. That, that's still 30% remaining and not long to go. 
Yeah, so I guess they're trying to incentivize more brands uh, to join. Um, one of the things they announced yesterday was a competition for creatives. Um, so they're running a competition where the audience votes for the best ad of the games. Um, I co- spoke to Kurt Burnett and he, he talked about it celebrating creative. Um, it, it did sound a bit like the thing that, that Nine introduced at its upfronts earlier this year for State of Origin. Um which they've referred to as Australia's closest thing to the Super Bowl. And then during the event the other day, Kurt kept talking about Super Bowl moments for creative that are going to happen during the Olympics. So I guess it's sort of like a battle as to who's is going to be most Super Bowl-like. Um, the only difference at this stage that I can see between the two competitions that the, the networks are running is that the 7-1 is going to be completely audience-voted, um, but they have said they're going to drop the full details of that next week. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Um, Nine's state of originality, um, that w- which will see a million uh, dollars in adv- in advertising inventory awarded to to the commercial judged as best on ground over the three game state of origin series next year, will be judged by a panel. Um, so they're the main differences. But you know, I guess we'll see what Seven's full proposition is next week, and and whether it can, as you say, get those extra advertisers over the line in the lead up to the games. Coming up next, Xander chats to the Sydney Morning Herald's Lisa Davies and Dave Eisman. The Umbrella Comms Com program is now complete with Poem, Medibank, Volkswagen Group Australia, Blooms the Chemist, One Green Bean, Sefiani Communications Group and many more confirmed on the bill. Now is the perfect time to lock in your tickets for May 27 in Sydney. Secure your front row seats now and bring your team right up to date with what matters most to the communications and PR industry. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash commscon for more information. So joining me today on the Mumbrella cast for a chat is Lisa Davies, the editor at Sydney Morning Herald. Hey, Lisa, how are you? Hey, really well. And Dave Eisman, the director of subscribers and growth. How are you, Dave? Very well, thanks. So thanks for joining us. Um, we're obviously here to, well, not obviously, I'll, I'll, I should introduce this, but we're here to chat about Sydney Morning Herald's 190th anniversary. Um, but before we get to get all the way into that, I just wanted to touch on a few things that have been you know, associated with you guys the last few weeks. So obviously the cyber attack that struck your publisher nine recently. Um, Lisa, you spoke about the fact that it made getting the print edition out difficult at the time. Can you speak more to that and, and talk about whether there's sort of any ongoing issues associated? Well, I think the, the first thing to say about it is that, um, you know, it was a uh, extraordinary event for the whole company uh, in terms of the publishing business and the Herald. Yes, we were seriously impacted. Um, we just couldn't access our systems in the usual way. So we've been having to um, use, uh, and I, I'm clearly no tech expert, so I won't go into the the specifics, but it's just, it, it just has meant a pretty old school way to put out the newspaper. There was a time um, on the Monday, the de- this first de- full day after the attack, um, that I wasn't actually sure we would get the paper out. Um, wow. And that's never not – the Herald has never not come out, <laughs> um, as far as I know anyway. And, uh, yeah, it was a pretty – it was a pretty hairy um, few days. But, I mean, just a huge amount of credit to my entire team, the whole technology team, everyone involved for just, you know, shoulder to the wheel. We just – powered through and did the best that we can with the tools that we had and look it's probably not the newspaper that um is the most physically beautiful or um fulsome account of the previous day's proceedings that tuesday morning newspaper but um look we got it out and uh you know our subscribers have been incredibly grateful for that 
Yeah, and are, are there any ongoing issues that you're still dealing with in regards to it? And, and you know, like, a, ha, has there been sort of anything put in place, any additional protocols or anything like that for to, to you know, guard against this sort of thing happening in the future? Look, we've hit a point of a, there's a lot of stability now. We, we're doing our jobs and um, the, the paper's coming out still, which is excellent. Uh, we, yeah, there will be some changes going forward in, in some of the... Um, the systems that we use and, and whatnot, but I think it's important to note that while we've been really badly impacted, the broadcast side of the business is probably more heavily affected than us. Just something that's happened more recently, I'm not sure whether this ties in or, or whether this is a separate question entirely. Um, we noticed over the weekend that, or on Friday, that Prince Philip's death didn't make the early edition of the, of the Herald for Saturday morning. Did the ongoing issues... Because it hadn't happened by then. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the first edition gets sent to print at 7pm. So 7pm. Okay, the yeah, so that, 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 was gonna, that was going to be my question because there yeah. were other papers that morning that came out and had... So it depends where them. you live in Sydney as to whether you got it or not. So uh, first edition didn't carry it because it hadn't happened. Second sure. edition was sent at 8.30 and um, that hadn't happened then either. So our final edition did include a huge amount of, I think it was like eight pages in total that we redid um, on Friday. So most... Most of the metro area did carry it, um, but just depends where you live and the distribution route. What can can you talk more about? I guess that process of what point in the process that you go, no, stop. This is a story that we need to get in, and and maybe how that process might have changed over the years with the way that that print publishing works. Um, I'm not sure it's changed a huge amount. When something big like that happens, I mean, this is uh, you know Prince Philip, the husband of the Queen, and she's been on the throne for. Decades and decades now. Um, they've been married for 73 years, I think it is. So hugely significant event. Um, we are, even though obviously the Herald is a masthead that supports a real conversation about uh, becoming a republic, we, um, you know, we're still part of the Commonwealth and, and a lot of our readers certainly identify with the monarchy and, and have... Um, you know, have that interest in that family. So, you know, hugely significant event. Uh, we had a, a lot of stuff. I mean, he was 99, so it wasn't a huge surprise. So we did have a lot of stuff pre-prepared and had done so for quite some time. So it wasn't, um, it was actually quite a calm um, edition, but you know, change between between second and third edition. And uh, yeah, the, the final product I was really happy with. Yeah, it's definitely interesting hearing how that works. Um, and moving on to the anniversary, you know, this is, this is what we're here to chat about. Um, so... You know, wherever you'd like to start, uh, Dave or Lisa, um, what's happening around the milestone? Um, any exciting activations, retrospectives or anything like that that, that you know, we can look forward to? So the Herald turns 190 um, and we'll be celebrating it by celebrating Sydney. Um, this masthead has been, uh, was first published on the 18th of April, uh, 1831. <laughs> so um, it's the second oldest continuously published masthead in the English-speaking world um, behind the Times of London. So it's a pretty big deal and I think it's worth celebrating, so we plan to. Um, we're going to have on Monday the 19th because it falls on a Sunday, but um, we'll be celebrating it on the Monday because the Sun-Herald is a newer publication in our in our suite. But So Monday the 19th we'll carry a... Um, I think we're doing a 16-page souvenir edition, a wrap of the paper, so 16 pages on top of the usual newspaper. And we will have just some wonderful um, retrospective content but also really look forward as well. I mean, 190 years, it's not like 
Okay, we've done 190. Time to go home, guys. We're looking forward to the to the double century and uh, you know our ongoing relevance and importance to this city and the nation and you know Australia's place in the world. I guess. I guess on the other side of it, how would you respond to to marketers and people in the advertising industry who who might contest that anniversaries ultimately aren't re- aren't relevant to readers? Well, I think those people would not be herald subscribers or readers i mean the brand that we have and the the mastered that uh we are celebrating is hugely important to people and whilst anniversary journalism is certainly not something that we you know we do all the time i think um when someone else can claim 190 years of continuously publishing (laughs) then um i'd like to celebrate that for them too (laughs) it's it's just a huge deal and i Look, if you look back at what we've achieved and also where we're going, I mean, I don't think, I mean, Dave can probably talk to this, but we've we've not ever been in this, well, I don't feel like we've been in a stronger position in the last few years. I mean, we've, we've, um, we've got an incredibly strong subscriber business. Um, we've never been read by more people in our history. So more than 9 million readers each month um, contact or come into contact with the Sydney Morning Herald. The, the Herald is the largest has the largest readership across print and online in the country so it's just so important that people understand that and the and the um benefit to subscribe to marketers and and advertisers is that you know you're reaching a lot of people so um and and we're one of the i think most importantly above all of that is that we're incredibly trusted brand you know um people flock to us when they when they need to know what's happening and, and cut through the spin yeah, absolutely. And I guess other than the anniversary, I mean, one of the biggest shakeups, um, you know, in in the working history of the of the Herald was COVID nineteen last year. So just going to touch on that a little bit. Um, how is that for you um, navigating it, um, wor- working from home, and just everything else that came with it? Is do, do you think there's been a, a I guess a bigger challenge to to you in your career? Uh, it was certainly character building. Um, I think. You know, having the entire newsroom working from home um, posed a number of challenges practically uh, that we had to overcome. And that's not just for us, that was every newsroom. Uh, it, and also, I mean, the biggest challenge I think that I found personally was um, maintaining that contact. I mean, newsrooms are thriving places of ideas and discussion and, and you know, we also mostly all really like each other a lot too. So they're fun places to be, particularly when something big happens. And this was the biggest story that many of us will ever be a part of. And it was exhausting speaking to people sort of on the phone one-on-one rather than in sort of more spontaneous group meetings, I guess. But, you know, I just can't credit everyone enough. I mean, the the challenges around finding the light and shade, around, um, you know, really focusing on the positives when, you know, there was an awful lot to be quite scared and worried about, um, finding those balances. I think they were probably the biggest challenges for me. Yeah. And, and how did, I guess, COVID-19 impact subscribers and subscriber strategy, um, Dave? I mean, can, can you speak about, you know, we, we, we've heard a lot about the growth in digital subscribers, but can you, I guess, talk about what the impact was on su- the subscription business as a whole? Yeah, sure. I mean, we very quickly noticed that this was possibly the greatest um, turning point for our subscription business, our digital subscription business that we'd ever see. It's, it was interesting. It seems like, you know, as Lisa said, we've got the largest um, audience across print and digital in the country. And it seemed like when the pandemic hit, everyone was struggling to firstly just get their heads around what it meant for them and, you know, the health risk. Then it was the impact on 
their careers, their investments, the economy, um, the world. We, we just saw many, many thousands of people um, decide that at a time like that, you've got to turn to a, a source of information that you can trust. And that showed up in the numbers um, very, very quickly. And it was, it was quite a sustained uplift that we saw in subscriber acquisition, um, particularly through those first few months when, you know, there were rolling lockdowns, um, markets were all over the place. It was quite a, an incredible, you know, the numbers were just incredible. And the feedback we were getting from those new subscribers about why they were deciding to subscribe at that point was, um, you know, it kind of encouraged, you know, the people I work with, the newsroom to really focus on um, the basics and the fact that people really value a trusted source that's free from bias and cuts through a lot of the noise. I guess the really encouraging thing that we've seen since then is that the vast majority of those people have stuck around. So um, we've really seen no greater propensity for people to cancel who came on during that initial period of COVID than our, than our usual subscribers, which for me suggests it might have been that moment when people, you know, many, many thousands of people recognised that you actually do get what you pay for when it comes to information <laughs> on the internet and certain sources are worth paying for. Um, and, and once you do that, you tend to, tend to realise that it's well worth, well worth the investment. Yeah, and I know that um, obviously packaged subscribers with both print and digital are a large part of the business. Was that uplift you talk about in, in both? Did, did you see an initial drop in, in print subscribers and, 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 and an uplift in digital or was it, was it really across both? Yeah, we, didn't, we certainly didn't see a drop in print subscribers. Um, we definitely saw the largest uplift in digital only, um, which I think just reflects the fact that that's the largest part of our audience. Mm -hmm. But and at the same time, we saw some really encouraging growth in print subscribers, particularly, um, you know, digital access plus weekend print. And we've got a few thoughts as to why that might be. I mean, obviously, part of it was people were stuck at home and it's a great thing to you know spend a few hours with on the weekend. The other thing that we saw happening, um, particularly among certain demographics who might have been more at risk is, you know, if people weren't comfortable in that initial period, um, going to the news agent to get their newspaper as they might've done for decades. We got a lot of feedback that those people were instead subscribing and really enjoying having it dropped on their front doorstep. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and just in terms of, I guess, the strategy as well, uh, the Herald and, and Fairfax, it's a little bit different to some of the other, uh, I guess, more obviously paywalled style digital offerings. Um, is that something that you guys are committed to staying to? You know, that you, you can read your, your first, what is it, five, and then beyond that, it, it prompts you to subscribe. Is, is that part of the long-term strategy? Yeah, it varies a little bit depending on, you know, who the individual is, where they've come from. So it, it's there's a little bit of complexity, but we do think that having a model where people are able to sample the content, get a sense of what they're buying before they commit is the right one, particularly for the Herald and The Age. Obviously, the Fin Review um, has quite a different model, um, but we think it does a really good job at sustaining the really large audience that Lisa referred to while also supporting um, our ongoing growth in subscriptions. So I think the model's certainly not static. We've got plans for more changes in coming months, but that notion that you can sample some of the journalism before we ask you to pay is definitely the right one for The Herald. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess around an anniversary, you sort of reflect back on, especially sort of maybe the last decade or or even even beyond that. And another one of the big transitions that's happened for the Herald has obviously been the ownership by by Nine. 
I, I guess what what was that transition like? Were there any difficulties that that, that had to be overcome? I guess what were, what were the biggest challenges with doing that or was it just a completely smooth process and there were no challenges? <laughs> <laughs> look, we probably wouldn't tell you even if there were. No, um, no look, to, from my perspective, um, it's worth remembering that in the lead-up to the announcement of a potential merger between the old Fairfax business and Nine, we had also had um, private equ- equity circling us, which was a far less appealing option I would say um, and Nine is a is a is a brand that Australia knows and understands um, so I think from my perspective and certainly most of the newsroom as as I picked it up were pretty comfortable with the idea slightly strange um, and some of the content that you see on Nine is not always like aligned with necessarily what our brand proposition is but that's a good thing and I think from the outset um, the former CEO and and it's continued through to today um, were very much like we do what we do and the different parts of the business should should retain their individual identities and I mean not least of all because the subscribers don't you know they're not going to cope cope otherwise and you know we have a we have a wonderful product that's been um published for 190 years and there's no there's no point changing changing what works so uh, from my from my point of view and I think the wider business like it's business as usual it's it's not changed I know there's always um there's always a huge amount of twitter conspiracy theories about the um you know the various <laughs> influences on the editorial line but I can tell you right now I've never had a call from any nine CEO or uh, even anyone above my own boss about content, um, you know, and how it impacts on the company. It's just, you know, we have an independent always uh, underneath the masthead. That's our slogan and, and that's how we operate. Yeah, for sure. And and just interested in in how it went in terms of changing the editorial processes or, or whether they changed it all for for reporting on things that were related to nine and 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 nine's interests. I mean. Um, obviously, you've you've got to have the disclosure there on those articles, but yeah, we did before too. So whenever we would write about the Fairfax company or the Fairfax family or the or the or the broader business, it was referred to as publisher of the masthead. So nothing's changed at all from that perspective. Um, I, I'm sure some people might wish that it had, but <laughs> um, it hasn't, and and we can keep it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, what else should we look forward to for the for the rest of the year? Maybe for the next ten years for the Sydney Morning Herald. What are you wow. predicting? And 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 do either of you have any any overarching predictions about the future of print media? Well, you can have that one. Can I, your, can I just answer your earlier one about the next ten years? Yeah, yeah. Please. I think, I think Lisa alluded to it earlier, but I think you know I, I've been part of this business for quite a while now, and I think. The mastheads, including the Herald, are in a stronger spot than I can remember. I mean, the business models changed dramatically, but we've now got this business model that's led by subscribers. We've got this virtuous cycle, which is you produce great journalism, you get more subscribers, that creates more scope to invest in great journalism. And I think that's only going to accelerate in the next 10 years. So I'm feeling pretty confident. Yeah, likewise. I mean, um, there was a time, um, you know, maybe five years ago um, or um, thereabouts when, you know, may, there, there, maybe there would been, have been conversations then about whether the print products, for example, would still be around in five years. And they are and they're still huge revenue drivers for us. And I think 
it's a really encouraging sign. I can't see a time when there won't be a print product. Um, I mean, I'm sure there, that might come, perhaps in 190 years, <laughs> yeah, another, 190. another 190 years. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, the weekend papers are still incredibly well-valued and well-read. Um, and, you know, we just, as, as Dave just pointed out, you know, Let's keep churning out great journalism and people want to pay for it, however they consume it. Um, there'll still be a huge love for, for a printed product, I think, for, for many years to come. Yeah, fantastic. We're looking forward to it. And, yeah, so Lisa and Dave, thanks so much for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast today. Thanks. Thanks, Xander. And that's it for this week. But before we go, the Mumbrella 360 reimagined program is seriously heating up with some of the industry's best already confirmed on the bill. Big names included Koala's Chief Marketing and Technology Officer, Peter Slotterdyke, Cole's Chief Marketing Officer, Lisa Ronson, AFL's General Manager, Digital, Sarah Wise, WPP AUNZ CEO and Managing Director, Jens Monsies, and many, many more. Plus, don't forget that $300 early bird savings expire in a few weeks on May 7. So don't delay your ticket purchase any longer. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 for more information. That's it for this week, though. Tim, Xander, Zoe, thank you so much for joining me on the Mumbrella Cast. Thanks, Thank Taylor. you.